Well, good morning, Bethel. If you take out your Bibles, uh, we're going to get there eventually this morning. We've got a, a few good things to do. I, I hope you've had um, taken real joy and pleasure in seeing these past few weeks just how far the ministry of Bethel uh, really reaches. Uh, the Czech Republic, uh, it reaches. Uh, we have Hildy Reimer who is here uh, uh, in town as well, and she just arrived, and we're going to hear from her about uh, the gospel going to Guatemala. We hear about local missions through Young Life. It's just in the last couple of weeks. Uh, praise, praise God for uh, the faithfulness of this church to support local and foreign missions. So appreciate what you guys do there. Um, in your bulletins, there is this little um, postcard that I want to bring to your attention. I want to remind you about our annual Christian Thought Forum Apologetics Conference. And it is just five weeks away. So we are giving this to you now so that you will reserve that time on your calendar. Um, As it says, it's November 10th and 11th. And this year we have three different speakers coming. We have Craig Hazen. In fact, I have to just say this too because I'm from Biola. We've partnered with Biola this year. And they're helping us with a lot of the promotional materials. And all of the speakers are closely affiliated with Biola University, my alma mater, Holly's alma mater. BJ's alma mater, a few others maybe. Um, So we're proud of that place and its um, ongoing impact in the world. Uh, But our speakers this year are Craig Hazen, Clay Jones, and Natasha Crane. We're going to have our first female speaker for Christian Thought Forum too. And we've got just a host of excellent topics to help you in your own uh, faith, just developing and maturing in your faith and your witness in the world. Some of the topics are, as you can see here, uh, Christianity and the challenge of world religions, uh, progressive Christianity, what are some of the traps and subtleties within uh, the world of Christianity, those who would, uh, would claim to be Christians but maybe have um, some da- dangerous or aberrant views from uh, within, uh, uh, problem of evil and apologetics on hell, all kinds of things. So I hope you will reserve Uh, the date for this. These are important issues, and it will help you be a more ardent disciple and a more faithful witness. Uh, So set that time aside and plan on coming. I'll let you know that it is free, and please invite whomever you will. Uh, We will take a love offering because we want whomever shows up to have some skin in the game and to help support this ongoing ministry. So if you would pray with me, uh, we will dive into our passage this morning. Father, we thank you that the gospel does not go to just one people group, one region, but it is available for all mankind, that you sent your son Jesus Christ to be the savior of mankind. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful witnesses where we are, where you have planted us in the sphere of influence that we have, and to our backyard, to our neighbor's and even across the globe. May we not be stingy with the gospel. May we not hold up secure and safe in our own little world or bubble. But may we have the courage to go to wherever the gospel is not and to be your ambassadors there. Lord, I pray that you would guide our time in your word this morning, that it would instruct us and that it would inspire us and create not just head knowledge, but hearts that want to go forward for you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew 22, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, 
And I'll ask you just to kind of think for a moment with me as you're settling in and finding your, your place. What are some of the hot button issues of our day? Let me just run through a list of them. Maybe these would be sort of national here or local, I should say. About the legalization and distribution of marijuana. It's just a little bit of a hot button issue, yeah? Alaska's fiscal crisis and how we ought to solve it. Budget cuts, taxation, PFD withdrawals. Same-sex marriage and gender dysphoria. Standing or kneeling for the national anthem. Mass shootings and Second Amendment rights. How about just local within the church, just maybe within our own church, our own community? Educational preferences. Public school, Christian school, homeschool, charter school. Which is best? Debate amongst yourselves. (laughs) Bible translations. Which one's right? Which one's best? Calvinism and Arminianism. Which theological framework is the one we ought to adopt? Worship styles, modern to contemporary. Gender roles within the church and at home. Just mentioning this list raises the temperature in the room, yeah? You feel your neighbor getting warm? Uh, I know some of you are like, open those windows, I need out, right? If he's going to touch on any of those, so don't worry about it. Um, These are the hot button issues of our day of our community, and even of our local fellowship. And as we come into Matthew 22 and we look at, starting at verse 15 through 46, what we're going to see are the religious leaders of Jesus' day, those who were threatened by Jesus, trying to trap him in what were the hot-button issues of their day. And as we've seen before, the questions that are presented to Jesus really are not sincere inquiries, right? They're, they're not looking for his genuine input so that they might learn. These are tactical questions only. They're simply trying to ensnare him so they can get an unpopular answer, so they can exploit his answer and use it against him. In fact, Jesus had become such a threat to the religious establishment that even typical religious groups that were at odds with one another, or even enemies of one another, began to band together against Jesus as sort of their common enemy. And so we see groups like the Pharisees and the Herodians here banding together. And I'll show you a little more about those groups in just a second. So maybe the question is, what do we as modern day readers take from sort of these exchanges that we're about to see here? I think we get a chance to see how Jesus handles some things in three different spheres. First of all, we see how he comports himself, how he handles himself against these kind of this onslaught of issues. And secondly, we get to see how he handles the questions themselves. He really does provide some excellent substantive answers. And then finally, we get to see how he deals with the questioners. And so we really see three different spheres of how Jesus deals with these things that that come flying at him. And I think we get some guidance on how we ought to compose ourselves in an age of tension and debate and hot-button issues. And I think we get some direction on where we should be investing our primary energies in a world that is filled with just as much tension as was Jesus' world. And overall, I think the main thing that we're going to learn is this, that we should not let the troubling questions of the day, the social issues, the earthly disappointments, 
the unanswered evils crowd out that which is primary and central, and that is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We're going to receive a great reminder that we cannot simply just be so bothered by our news feed that we don't get on with the business of evangelism and being an ambassador for our Lord. And I think that's what we hear this morning. And a couple of other things. We're going to be reminded that Jesus is not simply a savior for those who profess faith in him, but rather that he is the sovereign king of the whole world and that all will be accountable to him. This is his world. He is the one that is redeeming it. He is the one that is building the church. He is the one establishing his kingdom. And again, all people will be accountable to him, which is why all of mankind needs to take refuge from the coming wrath of God in the given grace of God in his son, Jesus Christ. I think we're reminded in these passages that evangelism and discipleship, that these really are Christian activism of the highest order. We're reminded that there is a day where all evil will be no longer tolerated. It will be absolutely crushed and all will be subjected to Christ Jesus, the King of Kings. And finally, we'll be reminded, and I think this is an encouragement for the church, that it's not mankind who brings about the kingdom of God. That's not our prerogative. That's God's prerogative. It's his work, his prerogative, his promise. So look with me at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. So what we find here in this section, we really find sort of four vignettes or four encounters with Jesus, three that are initiated by sort of the religious establishment of the day, or we might well say the hucksters of the day, and one which is initiated by Jesus. Uh, And at this first exchange, we see that it begins with an awful lot of sucking up, right? And I would simply say, beware conversations that begin with flattery you know you're about to get whacked, okay? If it starts a little too flowery. And here you can just see how the Pharisees and the Herodians are just baiting Jesus' candor with their buttery comments. Oh, we, we know who you are. You're a straight shooter, Jesus. All right, straight shooter, how do you feel about this? Just baiting his candor and his response in such a way that they could ensnare him, right? And so what we get from this, well, let's just say this is maybe a little bit of an unpopular teaching that Jesus gives. Here it is. Jesus legitimizes both government and religion. Yeah, I'm preaching this in Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm in trouble. 
I mean, if there is a region that has more anti-government in it, I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't know what statistically the number of people who move to Fairbanks to simply get off the grid and get out from the thumb of the government is, but it's got to be higher here per capita than almost anywhere in the world. But what we find here from Jesus is that he does not legitimize one and reject the other. Rather, he affirms that both can coexist and that both are legitimate, And instead of simply villainizing one, he actually offers correctives to both. And so one of the things that we get from this exchange here is that we see the wisdom of Jesus just in how he handles the question. In fact, consistently, Jesus is really excellent at not just accepting sort of a too simple reductionist kind of a viewpoint uh, to answer a question. We've all seen different courtroom dramas, right? where the prosecuting attorney is just thundering away at the witness, yes or no, right? Demanding a narrow answer. And Jesus will not accept simply the yes or no question because this isn't an either or option. Uh, neither, two, uh, neither of these two arenas are mutually exclusive. We don't have to choose between government and God, at least on the broadest picture of things. There may be incidents where we do, and I'll get to that in a moment. But we cannot say that one is evil and one is right. Jesus establishes that there are uh, legitimate spheres here, two legitimate spheres, government uh, and, uh, and God and religion. In fact, the steady teaching of the scriptures is this, that it is God who establishes government and every authority. This isn't popular, this isn't fun. But this is what Jesus teaches. This is what the Apostle Paul expands upon in Romans 13, verse 1. He says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. You got some questions on that? I do, right? But wait a minute. So here's a little caveat for that. That doesn't mean that every elected official or every, uh, anybody in authority, does not mean necessarily that they are God's man or God's woman. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have God's favor by virtue of having been elected or having uh, taken power. It simply means that God's sovereignty supersedes any and every regime. That God is not surprised by those who grab for power or those who get power. All leaders... All rulers, all authorities are ultimately pawns in God's hand who will absolutely carry out his redemptive plan. And they will participate in his redemptive plan either knowingly or unwittingly. Our God is in sovereign control over every authority, over every power. They are just actors in God's great drama. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. Just a stream of water. Secondly here, we need to understand the context in which this teaching was given because it even maybe gives extra weight to it. The legitimacy of this specific government uh, in Jesus' day was uh, questionable. Uh, And the governmental issue of Jesus' day basically was the question of the legitimacy of Roman occupation in Palestine. Uh, Herod became king in Palestine in uh, 37 BC, and early on, one of the things he did was to establish his own high priest. 
And uh, this, was, this was really the debate of the day. And the Herodians were those who particularly supported Roman occupation and the high priest uh, uh, established uh, by Herod. And so that, that's kind of why they were at odds, particularly with the Pharisees in general. But here they've banded together against Jesus. But as you can see, the, the typical Jewish perspective of Roman occupation was these are the pagan overlords ruling in our rightful place. Imagine if North Korea had a monarch in Fairbanks and demanded a poll tax. That's kind of how this felt. I may be exaggerating it a little bit for effect, but that's kind of what's going on here. And so as you can see, this is no government of the people, by the people, for the people. This is no democratically elected government. And yet even under these circumstances, Jesus legitimizes the poll tax. That's kind of shocking, isn't it? In fact, he says, take, take the coin. And I have a picture of the coin. It was a denarius, as we're told. It's a little silver coin. I had a chance to see one of these, actually, when I was in San Antonio back in November. There was a museum there in town that I went to, and they had um, kind of a section on Roman coins. And I was walking through, and I was like, oh, there it is. There's a denarius. Look at that. And Jesus kind of looks at this coin and asks a few questions about it. This was used to pay the tax. On one side of the coin was the portrait of the emperor Tiberius, and on the back side of it was an inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And when we realize what was actually on the coin, we have a greater insight into Jesus' comment when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give back to God what is God's. It's a little edgier, isn't it? In other words... If we want to understand Jesus' comment, he essentially says governmental taxation is legitimate, but idolatry is not. And so his answer isn't just this soft, middle-of-the-road, placate-both-sides kind of answer. His answer is really, I'm going to punch you guys, and then I'm going to punch you guys. He whacks them both and makes each one satisfied at the beating that the other took. It's a, it's a brilliant answer from Jesus. He basically rebukes each side. To the Pharisees, he says, pay your taxes. To Rome and to the Herodians, he says, quit playing God. Ultimately, Jesus legitimizes a citizen's submission to their government, while at the same time affirming a higher allegiance to God himself. And again, while this might just seem like a, a little incident about taxes here, this, is, this becomes a big thing for the church. In fact, this is where the Reformation establishes uh, the separation of church and state. And I want to tell you, I'm very glad for that. I don't want a state religion because I don't want anything forced upon me. And neither do I in my, my most sincere heart for evangelism want to see a bunch of people pretending to be something that they're not. And so both spheres are legitimate, and that has been the teaching of the church for several hundred years. Um, we also see here that the government has no right to assume or to usurp the free exercise of one's faith in religion. And that is what we're going to be guarding in, I think, the next couple of decades. And that is something to be praying about. But overall, a Christian, as Christian citizens, we are to support and obey our government leaders unless they try to impinge upon the free exercise of our religion. And then the gloves are off. And we see this in Acts 5. We see an example of Peter and the apostles 
when they're given instruction by the Sanhedrin to no longer share in the name of Christ. And they simply make this beautiful statement, we must obey God rather than human beings. And Christian, we may have to be ready to say that someday. Um, I love the reply. These two common enemies normally battling each other Seeing Jesus, seeing his popularity, seeing his brilliance, say, hey, let's take aim at this guy. He's going to undermine all of us. They walk over, confident in their trap. We got him. We baited him. It's on. And they both walk away bruised. When they heard this, they were amazed. And they left him, and they went away. That's the first encounter. The second encounter, we see him not just debating an issue of government and state uh, and religion, but we see him dealing with what we might call bad theology. Jesus corrects bad theology, verse 23. And what we see here basically is he is affirming the historicity of the resurrection. That is, he is affirming that the resurrection of of mankind is taught uh, uh, in the Old Testament and not just in, um, in the prophets. Verse 23, that same day, the Sadducees, actually, I have to pause here. Maybe I've told you this before, but when I was in Sunday school, when I was a little boy in Sunday school, my teacher used to say, they were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. (laughs) So whenever you're reading the Bible and you come across Sadducees, you're like, what are they all about? What are they? They don't believe in the resurrection. They're Sadducee. Isn't that good? Sunday school stays with you, man. Keep it up, teachers. That same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother right on down to the seventh. Finally, the old woman died, right? That's what it sounds like. (laughs) Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them were married to her, Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Again, the Sadducees uh, didn't believe in a future resurrection of the dead. And so this question that they're posing here about this situation, what is known as leveret marriage, uh, this, this situation that they present here is not one of sincerity. They're simply trying to trap Jesus into what to them seems absolutely nonsensical. Now, I'm going to pause and uh, just talk a little bit about leveret marriage, hopefully not too long or we'll all get squeamish. But uh, essentially what this is, is if you have an older brother and he dies and he leaves a widow, if you as the younger brother were to take her as your wife, marry her, live with her in a married way, produce offspring and support her. So, you know, if we ever reinstated this, you know, younger men, you'd want to make sure you uh, at least thought what your older brother was marrying was attractive, right? Um, I know this is one of those things that a couple thousand years later, we're looking at it going, what? 
That makes us a little bit squeamish, but can we just at least agree and see this, that Leverett marriage was the welfare system of the day. It was a compassionate safety net for widows so that they wouldn't be exposed or exploited in a really hostile world. We'll just leave it there for now. Uh, And so here's the question. Having been married seven times, who is she married to in heaven? And again, you can see this is a tongue-in-cheek question because they don't even believe in the future resurrection. They're just putting it this way to show the absurdity of the argument and try to trap Jesus in, in an uncomfortable answer here. And what Jesus does brilliantly, again, he shows them two of their errors. The first is this. He shows them that they don't know the scriptures. Now, one of the reasons that um, this particular group, the Sadducees, came to this conclusion was because they didn't believe that the teaching of the prophets was authoritative. They only believed in the teaching and that which came from the Torah. So they had limited their scope of what was the scripture and what was authoritative. And and because of that came to a limited answer. That's part of the problem here. But Jesus shows here that even the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, also taught of the future resurrection. He affirmed God's sovereignty over the living patriarchs. In other words, God is not just God over their dead bones, but over their living souls. And that's the point that Jesus is appealing to here when he goes back and cites this passage. And so he shows them, you don't know the scriptures. You only think you do. And the second error that they make is this, that they didn't know the power of God. In other words, they could not in their minds envision a world in a future state where God could make mankind in sort of a different uh, form than he is now, a better form with better bodies. And here we find the basis of glorification of our bodies, something that Paul later expounds upon in 1 Corinthians and in chapter 15 in particular. A number, uh, I think about a year ago, I preached on this, and the title of the sermon was called Bodies to Die For. And if you want to look that up to see where that goes, you certainly can. I ran the Hoodoo Half Marathon yesterday, and I can tell you, I want a better body. (laughs) Can I get an amen to that? Just to clarify, we all want a better body. You weren't just saying that, yeah, Eric, we think you need a better body. The first one, right. All right. The third encounter here. Jesus clarifies the greatest commandment. Verse 34. Hearing that, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. The Pharisees got together. You can see them, you know, twisting their mustaches here. What are we going to do? One of them. An expert in the law tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now we're talking about sort of an inside baseball kind of debate. Over 600 different commands in the Old Testament. And they're debating these different laws as to which is heavy and which is light. Okay. Verse 37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What a brilliant answer. Uh, The funny thing about this particular passage here, actually if you read this encounter in the Gospel of Mark, uh, this man who brought this question, who thought he would, you know, trap Jesus with it, he very nearly converts. He's so impressed by the answer that he gets. He's about ready to jump ship and go to Jesus' side. And they kind of start pulling everybody back. Like, whoa, this is getting a little dangerous dealing with this fella here. 
But Jesus' answer is, again, it's brilliant, and it's simple, and it's there for the taking. When we look at the Ten Commandments themselves, we see that the first four commandments are about love God, and the next six are about love man. And all of these other laws that are given sort of in between there deal with, they're called casuistic laws for the most part, and they largely deal with how we get this done. It's case law. What does it look like to love God in this situation? What does it look like to love man in this situation? And they spell it out. So which is heavy and which is light? Love God is heavy. Love man is heavy. How it gets done? These things are up for debate over time and through culture. And there's a whole lot more to say about that and I don't have time. But I love that the religious leaders see this exchange watch one of their own nearly trip over himself to go and align himself with Jesus. And it's as though they kind of gather together their wounded and slowly back away. (laughs) Let's stay away from this man. So let's just pause for a second here and just do a quick summary of the responses that we've seen from Jesus in these trapping questions, okay? First of all, he's been careful not to accept faulty premises, right? He doesn't take the premise as it comes. He doesn't accept overly simplistic bifurcation of issues, yes or no. He won't do that. He won't get trapped in that. He doesn't simply just try to avoid conflict by compromising or placating. He's willing to punch both adversaries with his answer rhetorically. He knows the scriptures certainly better than the Sadducees. And more than that, he knows the goodness of the revelation of God. He knows the power of God, and he knows it firsthand, for he is God. He pokes holes in their logic. And when asks about the law, he shows that his grasp of the law is greater than their own. More than that, he knows the purpose of the law. He knows why it was given, and he is the embodiment of its obedience. And so what is amazing here is that Jesus evades their trap while giving substantive answers to their questions. And that could be, you know, kind of lesson enough right there and inform all of us as we interact with people and the issues of the day and all of that. But then I think something really important happens here, and this is where I want to anchor my preaching this morning. And that is this. He turns the tables on them. Just as he had turned the tables in the temple, now he turns the tables and he quits playing defense and he quits being the punching bag to take all of the questions and he takes the offensive position and he puts a question on them. And I want to, I'll give you a quick example of this. A number of years ago after we were preaching through the, the book of Genesis at the time and I had a fairly belligerent man come up to me after the service and start needling me with questions. You don't believe that? That's absurd. How can you believe God created this? And he just started giving me question after question. I did my best to handle them for you know, as long as I could. And then finally I got to a point and I said, you know, you're right. There are some things that I don't have satisfactory answers for. But you have some questions to answer. Who do you think Jesus was? We're all here. How did we get here? Evolution explains maybe in your viewpoint some process changes, but it doesn't explain origins. How did we get here? We have the revelation of Scripture. How did we get this? How is it that it's been here 2,000 years with with the power and the influence that it has? And oh, by the way, there was an historical Jesus who lived a perfect life, right? Who rose from the dead. And those people who were around him at the time changed their lives and ultimately died as martyrs. So you have some questions to answer. And he said, you're right, I do. It was amazing how things changed. 
And I, I think sometimes Christians need to get better at this. We need to get sometimes ourselves into the role of the question asker, right? I love what Greg Kolkel said last year at uh, Christian Thought Forum, two years ago. I missed last year's. Two years ago at Christian Thought Forum. He said, let me put a stone in your shoe. Remember that? Let me put a little pebble under your foot and deal with that for a little bit. That's what questions do when you, you get in the question asking kind of a thing. Questions have a way of gently unsettling somebody, right? Like a stone in your shoe. Questions have a way of sorting out those who are sincere seekers and those who are just simply trying to get into a debate so they can beat their ideological drum, right? Questions have a way of sitting with a person for a long time. Questions have a way of begging out answers even after the discussion is over. I will tell you this, if you want to get better at sharing Christ with people, get better at asking provocative questions. That is what your Savior did. It's exactly what Jesus does here. He turns the tables. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Great question. Take Jesus' question and use that. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Uh, I'm supplying that. Uh, The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> okay, guys, Jesus is off limit. It hurts. Just trust me. It hurts. Don't do it. That seems to be the opinion they come to. What we learn from this encounter is that Messiah must be more than a human descendant. The first Lord here of these two references, the first usage of Lord is a reference to Yahweh to God the Father, to God Most High. But when David refers to my Lord, or the second reference to Lord, he is referring to one who comes from the line of David, but is also divine. And in case that weren't absolutely clear, just from the references or from the dual reference themselves, we see it by implication in what follows. Where Yahweh, where the Father, says to this other Lord, who has a place of honor in heaven... Sit at my right hand while I, the Father, put your enemies under your feet. And so we really learn two things here. First of all, Messiah is divine. This is in contrast to the early view of of the Jewish people looking for Messiah. They were expecting an earthly leader who would deliver them from Roman oppression, from these occupying agents, taxing them and whatnot. They're looking for a mortal And Jesus is showing them from their own scriptures, from a common place of authority, no, God is providing a divine. The God-man, the incarnate one, the second member of the Trinity who took on flesh. And secondly, we see this, and this is where I'm going to hit my exclamation point this morning, so um, sit back in your seats here. It is one to whom all will be subject. One to whom all will be subject. 
If I'm honest with you, my study this past week, as I'm going through these trapping questions, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, we've been here before. We've seen these kinds of questions. We've seen Jesus handle them. We know he was smart. We know he was a good rhetorician. We know he was good in a tough moment. We know he knew the truth. We know he knew the scriptures. And so a lot of this is kind of matter of fact. And then I got to sort of the stanza here of, of this Christ citing Psalm 110, where the Father says, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And here we get just this picture of the unfolding work of God in the here and now. In other words, this is what God is doing. Where is Jesus now? He's at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for us based upon his finished work on the cross. That's where he is. What is God doing in the world right now? He tells us right here, I am making everyone subject to you. All who are hostile to you, I am putting under your feet. That is God's active work in the world right now. And I want to tell you, my friends, that is good news. That means that when you and I look around and it feels like evil is winning and darkness is growing, we can be assured of the supremacy and the sure victory of Christ Jesus. Amen? Jesus provided substantive answers to the social issues of the day, and we can as well. We have them. They're here in the scriptures. They're in common sense. They're in logic. We can debate for those things. But the primary issue that he addressed with people was spiritual. And the church needs to be reminded of this today. Because even in these conversations, Jesus does not let the debatable issues and the social issues become the main thing. Rather, he puts the issue of God's promised Messiah and their right relationship to him front and center. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is the main thing. And overall, I think what we have to take away from this passage is we have got to learn not to let the troubling questions and the social issues and the earthly disappointments and the unanswered evils of our time crowd out that which is primary and central, and that is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I'll say it a few other ways. Politics changes people's voting position. The gospel changes people's eternal position. Social media rants rearrange who's, who remains on your friend list. Evangelism changes whose name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. Trivial debates separate friends. Discipleship draws people to God. And so my encouragement to all of us this morning is this. If you want to boil down the message in a single point, it's this. Be thoroughly evangelical. And some of you are going a little bit puzzled now because you think evangelical is simply a right-wing voting block as the media would have us believe. It's not. Evangelical means we are for the gospel. We know the hope of the world lies in their right relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're for the gospel. And so when the darkness is crowding in and we feel discouraged, we need to be reminded that Jesus is not simply a savior for those who profess faith in him. He is the sovereign king of the whole world. This is his world. He's redeeming it. He's establishing his kingdom. We'll all be accountable to him. And we're reminded that evangelism and discipleship are really Christian activism in the highest order. 
we are reminded that there will be a day when evil is no longer tolerated. It will be absolutely crushed and all will be completely subject to Christ. We need to be ambassadors for our Lord, which is helping people to take refuge from God's coming wrath and God's given grace, faith in Jesus Christ. That's our role. And let's not exchange it for something less. And finally, I love the great encouragement I take from this passage. It's not mankind who brings about the kingdom. It's God's prerogative. It's his promise. He will do it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Lord, hasten the day when our faith will be our sight, right? Let's pray. Father, we see this in the pages of Scripture. We want to see this in the world as it is. We know we don't bring about your kingdom. We beg that you would. We pray with the early church, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. In the meantime, may we be faithful ambassadors of yours, rescuing everyone we can. Because the gospel is on our lips and discipleship characterizes our life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.